There's a team feel to this week's ATP podcast as it's coming to you from Vancouver, the city in Western Canada nestling in stunning coastal scenery, which this week has played host to the sixth edition of the Laver Cup. Hello, I'm Chris Bowers in Vancouver, where Team World has defended the title it won in London last year. The home team made up of Americans, Canadians and an Argentinian beating Team Europe, surprisingly comfortably in fact, in a weekend of high-quality tennis, enthusiastic crowds and confirmation, if confirmation were needed, that tennis is well-equipped to thrive in the post-Federer Nadal-Djokovic era. Later in the show, we'll hear from Gael Monfils on what goes through his mind when it comes to his great array of trick shots, and we put a slightly different slant on the debate about the tour calendar. But our main focus is on the Labour Cup. In a few minutes, I'll talk with someone who's been at this event since it started, and we'll get into some of the talking points. But first, let's hear what this competition means to the two captains, each in their sixth time in the role for Team Europe, Bjorn Borg, and first, the Team World captain, John McEnroe. This is something that I believed in from the beginning when you know the concept was first uh, thrown at me and we got together and talked. Um, to me, it was like a no-brainer, and I, I, I worry you know, that our sport doesn't understand what it has sometimes. So um, I believe in you know the name Rod Labor is, is a name that we should always you know to use to our advantage, uh, and Roger Federer. So why this thing isn't at the top of the chain for all players to play, I don't know. How much is it a belief in the concept of the Labour Cup and how much is it your lifelong commitment to team tennis? Because you were a great Davis Cup servant at the height of your career. I feel like um, it was uh, something that my parents uh, instilled in me at a young age. It wasn't a tough sell, you know, to represent your country, have a USA on my back and we didn't have tennis in the Olympics in 1988, so most of my career there was no really other events. And I think people in our sports, obviously an individual sport, how fun it is. And, and it's a different look that I think is a, a very good one for our sport when people see that on the right occasions. Can't go too many, and you know we, we've had for a while too few. So uh, to me, um, I've always, I, I always love being part of a team. I played some team sports. Obviously, I was best at tennis. I think I made the right decision. But I wish I had been able to play an event like this. This is the most important week for me every year, to, to spend time with the players from, from, from Team Europe and to be part of Labour Cup. First of all, I follow tennis from January to December. I mean, I, I have to and I want to. That's, that's a very important thing. The other important thing is that I was at Indian Wells, I was in Monte Carlo and Madrid to speak to the players, to, to watch the players there, to see if they, 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 what's happening with the Labour Cup. So that's very important and to pick the right place for the competition is it's very important for, for me and for Labour Cup. But the important thing is that we need different, different players, different styles, different personalities getting to Labour Cup. Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe giving a lot of love to this competition, but there's also the question of what the competition gives to the players. During the week in Vancouver, I've been keen to ask the top players what they feel they get from the team variant of tennis. Let's hear from Kasper Ruud. He clearly believes his rise up the rankings off the back of two Roland Garros finals and a US Open final is partly due to what he learned in Labour Cup weeks. 
you know, when I played Labour Cup the first time, 2021, I just reached the top 10 for the first time like the week before, so I was very excited about that. And I've been able to stay here now for two years, and within the gap of those two years, I've reached um, some big finals, you know, three Grand Slam finals, finals of NATO finals last, last year. And um, I think that just has given me more belief in myself that I belong at this uh, stage and I belong among, you know, uh, the, the top players in the world and that I can... Um, play good tennis at the biggest stage um, and you know Labor Cup is definitely one of the biggest um, courts and biggest stadiums we will play during a whole year so I feel more comfortable. Are there more stories to tell after a Labor Cup week than a tournament week? Yeah there is uh, and you know especially last year when I was when I got to be on the team with Roger, Rafa, Novak and Andy you know they have been around for so many years and they have so many good stories between them and other stories as well that was told so that was like a dream week for me to be part of that team and learn from the greatest uh, players you know and uh, also Bjorn there as, as the captain it was was incredible. Are, are there any stories you can share obviously some of them will be private but uh, anything that you can grow from as a result of talking with people like Roger, Rafa, Novak in previous years? Well I think they were all kind of determined to try to win, so it was a lot of talk about Labour Cup. But we had a couple of dinners uh, that uh, last year in London with the team, and uh, those uh, those stories can remain private. But I think um, it was just really fun. And Roger has played, you know, he played the event for five years in a row, so it was great to have him on the team as a, the ex most experienced one, together with Bjorn and Thomas. And uh, it's uh, I'm gonna try to learn from what he kind of helped us with last year, and I look forward to seeing him. Rude acknowledging the role played in his rise by Roger Federer. He also said he found it a lot easier to find practice partners after playing the Labour Cup. We'll come back to that in a minute. But as this is a tournament with a constantly changing home, let's have a look at what it means to the host. This is the sixth staging of the Labour Cup and it's been in six different cities. Prague, Boston, Geneva, Chicago, London and now Vancouver. Next year it'll be in Berlin. Canada is a country with a rich tennis tradition, currently enjoying a renaissance through players like Milos Raonic, Denis Shapovalov, Felix Auger-Aliassime and in the women, Bianca Andreescu and Leila Fernandez. So what does it mean for Canada as a tennis nation to be able to stage the Labour Cup? Let's hear from the two Canadians involved this weekend, Raonic and first the country's top-ranked player, Auger-Aliassime. It just shows where Canadian tennis uh, is today. You know, we're Davis Cup champions and we're bringing huge international events, uh, tennis events in Canada. I just I think it shows the interest that there is for tennis in general in the whole country. And uh, I, I can talk from, uh, I guess, uh, real events or real experience. My, my dad uh, owning a tennis academy in Quebec City and uh, just the interest just keeps on growing and the number of kids that want to play. It's almost like you know we're missing facilities and courts. Uh, I was last week at the National Tennis Center in Montreal, and uh, the the gym was full of kids, and, and the, the courts were full of uh, of kids everywhere. So it's great to see that you know Milos was kind of at least in, on the singles court, kind of the uh, I think like the one to really break through on that international scene and be in the top ten and go as high as number three in the world, and then to follow it with Dennis and myself and. and and now we have other players like Alexi and Gabriel Diallo who just qualified our country in the last eight in Davis Cup. It's great to see that, you know, because sometimes you can have highs and lows, you know, uh, for a country in, in one sport. But it's nice to see that it keeps on going and that, you know, it's not going to stop at, uh, at myself or Milos or, or Dennis, you know. 
Uh, I think it's a big deal. I don't think you have this thing go on 10 years ago that you can really consider. Like we were playing, last time I played here was a Davis Cup at UBC in front of 2,500 people. Like this is a whole different thing. And that is when you're hosting a Davis Cup tie, and it has to be in Canada, right? Because you have that home advantage. The fact that it would be considered by such an international event that's sold out all the cities it's gone through, and some of them sold them out in minutes, like, I think that goes a long ways. And uh, to be able to give the West, there's a lot of other great cities on the West Coast, but to think like Vancouver is a spot that should do it, I think uh, says a lot about Canadian tennis, the passion for tennis throughout Canada and where Canadian tennis is. Milos Raonic and before him Felix Auger-Aliassime. Lots of talking points there and to discuss them with me, who better than someone who's been at all six Lever Cups held so far and someone who during her own playing days represented her country in Fed Cup. The former British player Sam Smith who's been in Vancouver doing commentary for world television. I began by putting it to Sam that this year's Lever Cup has had a lot riding on it, being the first time that none of Federer Nadal or Djokovic has been on court. So how does she feel Vancouver 2023 handled the test? Well, it depends if you look at it from what vantage point. You know, If this is a competition that's still around in 50 or 100 years' time, this may just be like a very small junction where there's been a slight, there's been a slight generational shift, and that was, that was always going to happen at, at some point, and then it, and it continues to grow and attract a really big fan base. You often see so many fans here that have got their Labour Cup T-shirts on from, from Boston or Chicago. So there are many fans who are returning and those that are seeing it for the first time. For those that are new fans to the Labour Cup, yes, they probably are looking for the big names. But isn't it great to kind of stress test an event like this early rather than having great names maybe for 20 years and then it's even more of a big shock not to have them? The Tour has to face this and any and a particular competition. And I think it's a strength of the competition that it's been able to command the, the biggest names in the sport for the first five editions because when we first went to Prague no one really knew what this was was it an exhibition it became clear after one point this was not an exhibition so we'll we'll just see how it holds up we've also got a lot of rookies as well it's not just that the big names you know the superstars are, are not here apart from I mean Roger here but not playing there's so many players new to the event. We've also had some last-minute pullouts as well, which we haven't had before. So players coming in really haven't had a chance to really get a good understanding of, of what this event's about. So I think it's more than the, 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 the box office names not being here. There's some other components as well. We've seen team tennis over the years. In the men's, we've had Davis Cup, we've had World Team Cup for many years, we've had ATP Cup, United Cup, Labour Cup, Fed Cup, now Billie Jean King Cup in the women. Everybody loves it when they're there, but there's still a problem of finding the right slot in the calendar, making it fit with everything else. What do you feel that team tennis actually gives that is really important for the team variant of what's essentially an individual sport? It's very important. It's the only time it's not all about you. And you have to worry about your teammates and supporting and also how you are coming across in terms of your energy. You might wake up that morning, not feel great, but you can't walk into the breakfast room down because you'll pull everyone else with you. For me personally, I felt I grew up and I really felt under a lot more pressure playing in a team than I did individually. And I also understood that the highs were much greater and the lows were much tougher as well. So, And also having to develop many more 
you know, social and, and interpersonal skills. You know, you can get very isolated, not when I was playing so much, particularly there were so many English speakers on the tour with the Aussies and the Americans and the South Africans. Certainly in today's tennis, many more languages, many more cultures, and the good players remain within their team or with a, with a parent, and they're not practicing particularly on the women's tour with each other I think that's more isolating on the women's tour than it is the men's tour because they have hitting partners and on a team you, you get to know other people under a stressful but exciting situation and you actually realize oh this is this is a good thing and then you see them again and you may may practice you may go out for dinner which is what you know, Rod Laver and Roger Federer that's what this is all about the, the, the friendships well, that's lasts far longer than your tennis career. What did team tennis give you that allowed you to grow up? It's a, it's a lovely phrase to say it allowed me to grow up, but in what way? In the early days of the Fed Cup, you had a number one singles, a number two singles, and the number two singles always used to play first. When I was you know, initially on the team, I was playing the number two, and the number one player at the time, Claire Wood, said to me the first time I met, we played as a team as I was walking onto the court she said don't you dare come off one love down and I've got to go on you know with almost one arm behind my back and I was like oh wow okay and that was great that was great for me it focused me and it made me understand the team dynamic so we certainly had a situation out here where Casper Casper Rude was almost starting you know on an uphill start his team were way down and it was a great test of character because it wasn't a level playing field out there. Had he lost that first set, it would have felt so much more than losing the first set. And I think that forces you to, you know, you know, to find your backbone, to, to be a, a bigger person and take on a lot more responsibility than you would normally. You mentioned Casper Ruud. When I spoke to him about the, the nature of team tennis, he was saying that there's a lot that we don't understand about the interpersonal relationships between the players and when he first played as, as a young player well before his three Grand Slam finals the Labour Cup actually gave him more confidence in approaching the top players to ask if they practice with him which I suspect is something that we just don't appreciate There is a hierarchy on tour when you first come on and you see I can remember being a very young player and seeing Martina Navratilova and Steffi Graf and all the players I'd sort of particularly the ones Graf was nearer my age but the ones I'd grown up Pam Schreiber Zena Garrison grown up watching there seems to be a huge barrier and they just seem to be sort of superhumans and untouchable you know and you're kind of terrified to you know, bump into them in the locker room or, or speak to them or they if they speak to you you're like oh what's happening they're speaking to me you know it's a it's a really big deal when you're on a team you're around them a lot more and not that they lose some of their aura but you start to also understand if you're observant you know why they're champions and you watch what they do and how they manage their day and it, it does break down some of those barriers you, you understand they're a human being as well and they have ups and downs and I mean the top players are quite smart you know they do separate themselves because they don't really want to get you to get to know them so well because it's worth 15 love a game but in a team situation when everyone wants to win some of those barriers they they do come down and and you realize actually that so many of them are, are great people and they often I always found the great champions always want to help the generations coming up behind them they don't they don't fear competition they're they're happy to help you does the hierarchy disappear in a team environment no, because you still have your leaders. Certainly, if Roger was was playing or, or Rafa, then then Casper would 
you know, happily defer to them. But he's People been, have talked about Casper yeah. and Taylor Fritz as leaders of their team. Because, the, because there's so many rookies and because they've played and they understand and Casper absolutely stepped up and he, you know, he had to deliver some points on the board to, because it was a, a team world juggernaut. So yeah, no, his role in, in a very short space of time has changed and he's got other players like young Arthur Fees, who's a teenager, and Ben Shelton looking up to Taylor Fritz. They're looking for, for those players to show them what to do in the, their, their two different situations in, the, in the, the scoring scenario. You've been through all the six Labour Cups so far. How do you think Vancouver has featured? Not that I'm looking for us to pay compliments to Vancouver, because in a way all six cities have done a great job, but do you get a sense of how it's either helped Canadian tennis or it is tapped into what's really a good generation for the Canadians at the moment? Well, it's the right time to have it, isn't it? On the back of the success of Bianca Andreescu and Auger Aliasim and a few years ago, Milos Raonic, who's one of the alternates, and, and Denis Shapovalov, who don't forget is a Wimbledon semi-finalist and has been a top 10 player, and Leila Fernandez. Yeah, it is, it is a great time. But Canadian tennis has been largely centred around Montreal, where the National Tennis Centre is, and Toronto, because they both, those two cities, have a, bit, a huge tournament every year. So they have a, a focal point and somewhere to draw the players. Vancouver is it's not a tennis city. It's an ice hockey town and with some soccer thrown in as well. Uh, so, yes, it can draw a new audience and, it, and it's really good, really, really good to, to spread the base. And that's really important because there is nothing more to draw a fan in than live tennis in an exciting environment. doesn't matter what age you are. Do you see a certain model of city that is going to benefit from having the Labour Cup in the future? I feel it's important. It's a sports city. We've certainly learnt that from, from Boston and Chicago. That, that was very... You get a different type of sports fan who actually, uh, in those cities, often supporting teams, and they're very, they're very used to that. You can see the attraction for Vancouver here, trying to get out of the shadow of Montreal and Toronto and, and looking to... I read a uh, piece in the Globe and the Mail the other day about the, the region here trying to trying to develop tennis even more. I understand in Stanley Park, which is very close to here, they have one of the largest amateur tournaments in North America. They have seventeen, I think, seventeen uh, hundred entrants. You know, the largest amateur tournament. So there is there is some sort of tennis base, and this is a catalyst. What cities? will be you know on, on the roster and it also depends what is a really good fit for the Labour Cup its sponsors its brand but what you do know is whenever you go to a, a Labour Cup venue you have a spectacular visual I mean it, it, it they managed to get it exactly the same so it looks like no other tournament if you were just watching two seconds on a TV screen, you'd know instantly it was the Labour Cup. That, that's like... The Black when, Court. That's when you hear a song and you know there's a very distinctive voice, whether it's Barbara Streisand or Barry White. You know within two notes who it is. So, And, and a distinctive format that I feel actually the, the tour could draw an, an awful lot from in terms of the intensity um, and the excitement that the, the way they do the two sets and a match tiebreaker, just condensing tennis, making it faster... And how, how much that does bring to the sport. The former tour player and now established Labour Cup commentator, Sam Smith. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and atptour.com. Well, the Labour Cup has had its fair share of characters. Francis Tiafo and Ben Shelton for Team World. 
and Andre Rublev and Gael Monfils for Team Europe. Picking Monfils was an act of faith on the part of Europe's captain Bjorn Borg. The Frenchman is now 37, his ranking is still in the 140s as he attempts to come back from yet another knee injury, but he was immensely popular in Vancouver, even among the home crowd cheering for Team World. Monfils says he just wants to have fun in the remaining part of his career, and the crowds clearly love his array of trick shots. But does he practice his trick shots, and are they tactical? Questions our reporter, Usain Kaderas, put to Monfils, starting with how he decides to play a shot he knows will wow the crowd. To be honest with you, I never really decide, you know, it just comes up, you know, it's quite natural, you know, uh, it's uh, pretty much uh, instinct. So, you, okay, when you hit it, do you, does that, does it cross your mind that this could be an entertaining shot? Not at all, to be honest, not at all in a way that uh, some, you know, I know that uh, having my, my own fun, that's the principle. And uh, in, it's more after that, uh, you know, uh, I can see the reaction of the crowd or whatever, you know, it's more after. But most of the time is to have my own fun or, you know, it's like um, I felt in a way that that was the, the best shot I could hit and it looks different. Do you like going back and watching your own trick shots? Not really, you know, unless I hit oh, like a 360 uh, <laughs> champion's match, you know, this one uh, I watch it. But to be honest, no, not really, because in, in a way that uh, the trick shot, that if I want to hit my own trick shot, you know, it's, they are quite impossible uh, to, to do it in match, you know. And those ones, they are great, you know, uh, and, uh, but I'm not going to YouTube and watch my own trick shot. Sometimes uh, I do in a way that if I'm doing some Twitch, or some friends show me, but uh, for my own initiative, not really, to be honest. I hate them every day. <laughs> do, you do you think it has a mental effect on your opponent when you hit those shots? I hope not, to be honest, because, you know, it's funny because it's a good question, in a way, that some trick shots people can, you know, haters will say it's like, you disrespect the, the, the opponent. First, is no disrespect because to hit a trick shot, you need to be super focused. Or that to hit the trick shot, to not hurt yourself. And uh, when you try something different, it's tougher than something simple. So this, I hope people will get it. Secondly, the main thing in tennis, that's a good tips for you guys, haters, focus on yourself, you know, put your game. You know, you don't have to see what the opponent do or whatever he, he does, you know, because the, the, the principle is yourself. So I feel like, you know, they take it and then they're on to the next one, you know. No one like think, oh, you know, uh, Rafa, he hit like a between the legs lob on me. Oh, <laughs> you know, you clap, it's, it's hard. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I still have a break point maybe to defend. Do you practice trick shots? No. You know, you, you never really practice trick shots, you know, you hit them maybe uh, more than certain players for your own reason, but uh, you never go like, oh, you know, I'm going to practice the between the legs or, or yeah. whatever, you know. But you said you hit them every day. Because I feel like, you know, I use it more than, uh, than people. I give you like an example, you know, people are super precise with the, the moving around the balls um, at the net, whatever, but me, whatever the ball is coming like at me, you know, take it like I'm, I'm lazy or maybe I develop something different because I'm lazy, I will automatically hit a volley between my legs. 
but not like, um, you know, in a way that I want to do a trick shot. It's in a way that, you know, maybe I develop like the lazy that, oh, you need to move around and hit a volley. But me, I will be like, okay, easy way, boom. I open my legs, boom, between the legs. Boom, trick shots. Good, bad, I don't know. The one and only Gail Monfils writing the manual about trick shots. Having said that, Monfils' slightly irreverent approach wasn't everyone's idea of fun, and he clearly got on Felix Auger-Aliassime's nerves in the singles they played, though it was clear afterwards that both men have immense respect for each other. John McEnroe was so vehement in his defence of the Labour Cup that he said it should fight for its own dedicated week in the tennis calendar so that players don't have to choose between it and a tour event or slot it in between a run of tournaments. Whether that ever proves possible remains to be seen, but we're going to put a slightly different slant on the debate about the tennis calendar by looking at it from the perspective of the coach and physio. Candy Reid caught up with Mike Russell, the coach of Team World's top-ranked player Taylor Fritz, and Fritz's physio Wolfgang Oswald. And she began by asking Oswald what he would most like to see. From a physio standpoint, it, mm. it would be ideal if we had some chunks throughout the year. Some of that's self-induced, but some of that is a, a longer off-season where we can properly prepare for the whole the whole next season you know and right. it's difficult it's really it's one of the few sports where you you have to microdose things throughout the year you can never periodize anything because you never know you can't plan ahead if you lose early then you have a week of training but if you go deep in three tournaments in a row we can't do what we want to in the gym you're getting some functional strengthening because you're playing matches and you're winning mm. but there's other things you can't touch on so It'd be interesting to see if we can track injury rates, you know. But I'm pretty sure every physio on tour, every strength and conditioning, every coach probably, because it's also hard for them to work on the things they want to work on, is maybe, you know, having some weeks where we can work on that. And, right. you know, some of that is also the player. You know, some of the top guys like Fed would take breaks and work on stuff and then come back and play. Other players don't have the luxury of doing that. Mm. So it's easy to say, well, let's just skip this week. And I suppose being top 10 is a bit of a blessing and a curse because you're expected to go the distance, aren't you? So is it hard to schedule Taylor's tournament just that you know that he's probably going to go long and you want to take those breaks? Yeah, I mean, we like to talk over what our ideal schedule is. But then obviously Taylor gets the veto power over that. So, <laughs> you know, there is times where we like a week where we can train. But sometimes we, we negotiate and say, OK, th you can play this event. But it's got to be a training week. We've got to train through it. You know, maybe we don't have the result that we want, mm. but at least we can get some work in and, and, and be in those conditions. Oh, that makes sense. So how much, Mike, is the communication between you and Wolf and Taylor? Do you sort of discuss what you're going to do initially and then go to him or how does it work? I mean, we all discuss as a group, um, and we let him know what we think is best for the schedule, for his, his body, for his tennis. Ultimately, he does make the final decision, and that's the other thing that's difficult with this scheduling because with your ranking increasing and getting higher, you have more opportunity. And so the off-season, which you could have an eight-week off-season, theoretically, or six-week off-season, depending how you if you make the ATP finals, but then you have a whole slew of exhibition tournaments and events that you can play where obviously it makes you know a good financial incentive. Right. So it's hard to say no to those. So being able to sprinkle those in and still having proper training weeks physically and working on your tennis, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge for everyone. So ideally, how would you make the schedule? If you were the head of the ATP, would you keep it as it is? I know that's a tricky question. It's tricky. I mean, I think the the best way to do it would be to maybe start the year a little later, you know, so through the holiday time period, there's a few more weeks, yeah. which will allow the players to have a break through the holiday where they can, 
you know, either spend time with family and use that break to train while they're at home with the holiday and families. I think that probably makes the most sense. And I've heard some people say that they like the way the WTA do it actually finishing in October, where November and December are completely free. Whereas, of course, we know that the ATP finale, which Taylor, of course, wants to get to every year, is into November. You've also got the Davis Cup final. Right. And that's the other challenge. You have a lot of these team events now that are created, which is, you know, great for the players and the fans. But now you have to create a week where you're going to put that on the schedule and you're creating another event. So it's a challenge. It's a, it's a real uh, puzzle piece that they have to figure out, but it does make sense if they could try to end the season not so long after the U.S. Open, it would make more sense just for everyone physically and mentally. Do you ever have any input as the coach, the physio, the fitness trainer? Do you have a, a word with the administration and, and uh, do they ask you your opinion sometimes? I mean, we do have coaches' meetings, and um, you know, the players have meetings, you know, with with the board and the and the ATP representatives. But y- you know, it's it's a very conflicting argument sometimes between players, coaches, uh, executives. You know, what's the best way to do it? It's you know, like in any corporation, there's a lot of different um, opinions, mm-hmm. and you know, when there's financial incentives involved also, it makes it difficult. So it's uh, hopefully they'll keep adjusting and it'll keep progressing and, it, you know, it just makes sense for everyone. Mike Russell ending Candy Reed's interview with him and Wolf Oswald. Listening to them, McEnroe's idea of a dedicated slot for the Labour Cup doesn't look like it has much chance of becoming reality because there's just too much demand on every week of the tennis year. But I guess that's a nice problem for the sport to have. If the Labour Cup has been the main event of the week in the Americas, on the other side of the world, two individual events have marked the ATP Tour's return to China after a hiatus dating back to before the COVID-19 pandemic. The Huafa Properties Championships in Zhuhai and the Chengdu Open. Next week, we'll bring you a special programme on the Asian Swing with a particular focus on the return to China. To whet your appetite for that, ATP Uncovered has been canvassing the opinions of many of the top pros about Chinese tennis and tennis in China. See if you can recognize the voices. Ni hao ma, xie xie. A few of the phrases that I uh, didn't say for quite a few years that I haven't played in China. Stand by for lift off. It's a big one on the calendar. It's the pinnacle of the Asian swing. Wu Ai Ni, China. The Rolex Shanghai Masters. Excitement building here inside the after quite a few years of absence of the ATP Tour tournaments on the Chinese grounds, we're very happy to receive great news that we're going to have the tournaments on the Chinese soils. The last time I, I went to China, I won Beijing, so it's obviously good memories. I've had some great memories there. I've played very well there, so uh, I'm looking forward to coming back for sure. I think there in, uh, in Shanghai actually was the first time I hit my jump backhand on the Tour, and uh, I did twice in one point, and the crowd was going crazy. It's been a while since we all have been in China. I think I always have very fond memories there from, I think, embracing the culture a little bit. You know, we all enjoy it and I think we miss all all of our fans out there. Well, I've uh, never been in China before. I uh, really excited to to play over there in front of the China Square. I I hear that this uh, really beautiful place to to play and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to, to play there. First of all, looking forward to seeing the fans. I think the fans are always super energetic there. Chinese fans, uh, like, they're gonna be crazy this year because they they haven't seen all the matches uh, for years. They all really appreciate tennis. Even the practices are super packed. They really 
follow the players and uh, really know everyone. So I think that's uh, that's always a nice feeling. I would describe the China fans as very enthusiastic. They show great respect to every single player that uh, plays there. They're always very vocal. They always give you a lot of gifts and, and treat you very well at the tournament. I think they're very passionate about the, uh, I mean, about the sport and, and same time also very, very respectful. I think every time we get there they treat us amazing and I think the support is uh, also very fair for whoever is playing. It would be like uh, amazing, you know, everyone cheering, uh, I hope my name. I'll try to, you know, make uh, them happy watching my, my matches and uh, enjoying every every single thing of, uh, of my match. Just their passion, their enthusiasm, uh, love for the game, love for their tennis players and they're one of the most loyal tennis fans we have in the world. Every single day they come out in front of the hotel giving you presents. Uh, you always need to prepare an extra suitcase for all the presents to come back home with. So. I'm very, very thankful for their love and support. We've seen uh, a small rise recently um, in uh, Chinese uh, men's tennis. Two of them are top 100 now already. Wu and Sang, they did it. They have a great year. They broke into top 100 and soon probably also top 50. Chinese players that have done well in big events is going to push for sure younger generations and players to um, pick up a tennis racket and go out there and, and play some tennis. I think it's always great uh, whenever you have two, three, players kind of in the same ranking as we did in Canada with me and Felix you know you tend to push off each other's results and, and success so with that there's always a lot of movement and it's already a big big tennis nation it seems like with all the fans that are so into tennis so for sure I can see a, a big push in, in the next coming years. Those players are, are on the come up I think it, the rest it depends only on them and they've played a very good matches already uh, beat uh, they've beaten quite a few good players so um, you know, the stars are bright for them right now. I think we're the future right now and I uh, hopefully the next generation can look up for us because we have uh, Lina, she's very successful in uh, Grand Slams and uh, hopefully we can do the same in men's side which uh, can inspire more boys to play tennis. They're definitely coming in full force so the rest of the tour should watch out. I'm really excited to, to see the biggest team of the tour in China. It's obviously always important to to have a lot of space and to, to have good equipment. Dining room is uh, spectacular always. Probably the biggest buffet you'll ever see. It's always something I think the players look forward to and uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely somewhere where I like to spend a lot of time. Yeah, the dining room in Shanghai I think is one of the best. Like you can eat the food from uh, any kind of different like countries. You, you have uh, basically everything you need, I think. Wu Ai Ni. China. I'm hoping that was I love you, China. Ni hao ma, xie xie. You're gonna, you, you will need to know ni hao. That means uh, hello. Ni hao. Ni hao ma. Ni hao. And uh, you need to know xie xie. That's thank you. That was Yi Bing Wu ending that collection of voices. And before him, you heard Grigor Dimitrov, Stefano Sitsipas, Dominic Team, Denis Shapovalov, Alex Diminor, Carlos Alcaraz, and Novak Djokovic. That's it for this week from the stunning city of Vancouver. My thanks to Sam Smith, another member of the Travelling Media crew who've been at the Labour Cup. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us at the same time next week for that special programme on Asia. By then, the tour will have moved on to Astana and Beijing. In the meantime, check out the ATP website for all the very latest video content, the ATP WTA Live Scores app for point-by-point -point scoring and all the latest results, and the Tennis TV app to watch the action live. 
I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis.